My dad went camping just about every single weekend he could with his buddies. And when I was living with him from a very young age, I would go camping with him. And I remember at a very young age, my, when my dad and his buddies would go to the mountains surrounding uh, Los Angeles, they would go to this one swimming hole. And this had to have been a very early time. By the way, Donna says that whenever I tell a story like this, I'm inevitably six years old. That may be. I was about six years old. <laughs> I actually may have been younger. I may have been, I may have been like four or five. But we were camping, and we were getting ready to go out to our swimming hole, and I went to go facilitate behind our campground behind a bush. You follow? All right. So I was out there facilitating, and all of a sudden, there were bees all around me. And just as I was about to jump up and exit stage left, I heard my dad yelling like I had never heard him yell in my life. It turned out, on the other side of that bush, there were some yahoos that were up there shooting just into any blind bush behind which I was taking care of business. And these bees flying by my head were bullets going by. Yes. Dodging bullets became metaphorically kind of a profession for me as I got my driver's license. And I became solid evidence why every immature adolescent male has astronomically high car insurance prices. But you know, as bad as those bullets were, and as bad as the bullets I was dodging as a teenage driver, by God's grace, the September right before I turned 18, I dodged the most important bullet ever. And that was the one that I justly earned God's wrath against my sins. And he plucked me out of the firing line almost literally, and brought me into his home and has rescued me. Anybody else have a similar story to that? Amen. Now, this bullet magic that happened that September 1988-89 is described in Paul's most important paragraph and that is found in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that, <clears throat> so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
Paul explains in this paragraph that God will credit righteousness to everyone who trusts Jesus to be their source of being made at one with God. Because Jesus bore the penalty our sins deserved on the cross. Now, I'm not the first to suggest that this paragraph, Romans 3, 21 to 26, is the summation of the entire rest of the Bible. Conversely, it is to appropriately unpack, to exegete fully this one paragraph, you need the entire rest of the Bible. You need 31,142 verses in the ESV to unpack and to clarify and to make clear these 100 Greek words. It takes all of God's word to answer the question that is implicit in verse 26. How can God be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus? This question, and no other, is the single most important question that anybody will answer or ignore to their eternal peril. This is the question that you must have an answer to. John MacArthur once asked, all your sins can be forgiven. Are you interested? If you are interested, then you will find the answer to how your sins can be forgiven in this paragraph. You and I must trust the promises of God for you in Christ. Now as we begin looking at this passage, I want to back up two short verses so we gain just a little bit of context. We're going to start reading in verse 19. Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been made plain, has been displayed for all to see apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. You see, Paul explains here that the law points to our sins. You are guilty as sin, pun intended. Jerry Bridges once tried to encourage his fellow soldiers in the army of Christ by reminding us that when we share the good news with those who are not Christians, their conscience is on our side. Deny it, get belligerent, drink, fight, lust, gossip, plead it away, it won't work. Oh, it will for a while, for many But it won't work face to face with the judge of the universe. But this is not all the law does. Verse 21 tells us the law points us to Christ. Why? 
Why does it point us to Christ? Because you are guilty and the law will never justify you. You will never be right with God no matter how perfect you are at keeping the law. Why? Because you will have already broken it before you start, get started being perfect. Which everyone here knows is impossible anyways. You are the kind of person who sins just like the rest of us. Now, I'm fairly certain pretty much everybody in this room agrees with all that. But let me clarify something for you. When you and I affirm that we are sinners and we do it biblically, we're making actually two points. One is obvious. We have sinned and do sin. But the second is, we sin because we are sinners. You see, when Adam and Eve gave birth to Cain and Abel and Seth and their brothers and sisters, they were already sinners. They had already mistrusted God's promises and acted on that mistrust. And just as you would expect, dogs give birth to dogs, cats give birth to cats, sinners give birth to sinners. That's you and me. This is, in fact, the one empirically knowable fact from Scripture that you really can't argue with. But the world is always arguing with it. You are, in fact, a sinner. And you and I and every mother's child needs the righteousness of God. So, praise Jesus, we come to verse 21. But now, something altogether different, something completely new. You are a sinner, but now. But now, he says in verse 21, this righteousness from God is knowable. It is knowable, in fact, from the Old Testament. And this knowledge of the righteousness of God comes quite apart from obedience to the law. And that's where we come to verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now remember, Paul just invested a great deal of real estate in his letter to the Romans from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to 3.20, explaining that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can't cut it. Your goose is cooked. You are toast. You may be rye, you may be wheat, you may be sourdough, but you are toast and there is no distinction. Now this much is clear. But now as we come to verse 22, we need to ask and answer two very important questions. What is the righteousness of God and what is faith? Now, if you remember, probably don't and it's okay. Back when we were in Romans 1.17, I kind of punted when I came to defining the righteousness of God. Well, today we're going to fair catch, all right? So hang in there with us. And if you remember, chapter 1, verse 17, for in it, the good news of Jesus, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, 
as it is written, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. And then we come to here in verse 22. And you see, in both of these verses, Paul is concerned with the righteousness that God credits to our spiritual bank accounts, so to speak, to use a modern metaphor. Now, we know this is true because in both cases, in chapter 1, verse 17, and in chapter 3, verses 22, we see that Paul's immediate turn after introducing this phrase, the righteousness of God, Paul points to the relative righteousness of the person in view. In the latter, no one anywhere has it of themselves. You can't. You are not righteous. You don't have it. In the former, Paul says, Anyone can have it by putting your faith in the good news of Jesus Christ. But as we come to this, we need to realize what Paul is getting at. And that is, in the Old Testament, which is the book Paul was very familiar with, righteousness had a forensic meaning. It had a legal meaning. It was a term that was used in a court of law. The way we would translate it today means acquitted. If you are a righteous person, you are free from the guilt in the matter at hand. If you are a righteous person, it doesn't necessarily mean you are morally perfect, which, by the way, helps make a lot of sense of a lot of passages in the Old Testament where the people were claiming to be righteous. They weren't claiming to be morally perfect. They were claiming to, have, to be right with regard to the matter at hand. So, the man or woman who is righteous in the Old Testament is one who stands before the Lord in such a way that they are not found guilty of whatever it is they're talking about. And in this case, we see that Paul is speaking about a righteousness that is of or from God. Now hang in here with me just for a second. If the town judge, let's say you're living in Bethlehem, the town judge declares you acquitted in the matter at hand, you're good as far as that town is concerned. You're done. You're you're free. You're, You're good. Everything's fine. You have been acquitted. You have been declared righteous. Now, if God declares you righteous, if God speaks righteousness into your account, so to speak. If he no longer counts your sins against you, then you are good as far as the universe and as far as the universe's judge is concerned. To paraphrase Jesus, if the Son has declared you good, you are good indeed. Amen? And as Paul says, this righteousness from God, this right relationship with God is from faith and for faith. Or as I think the NIV best translates this, kind of paraphrases the idea, it says this righteousness from God begins and ends in faith. Which of course brings up our next question. What is faith? As we see, faith in Jesus Christ is the means It is how it is that God is able to declare 
us to have this righteousness of God. Faith, or as you have most often heard me translated into the language we use today, trust. Trust is what credits us with a right relationship with God. Now that trust is granted to us by grace. And theologians have for millennia told us that biblical faith has three elements. There are three things that must be included for us to be said to have real biblical faith. The first is we must know. The second is we must affirm. And the third is that we must trust. To know is, first of all, to think. We must have some basic knowledge. There must be a content to our faith. We can't just have faith in faith. The Bible never teaches that. Soren Kierkegaard was absolutely wrong. We don't have a blind faith. We have a content of faith. And that is in his word. We must have a particular knowledge about God and about ourselves. We must more specifically have knowledge of what it is that God commands and what it is that God promises you and me. Then secondly, that is our head. That's that's what happens in our head. But then secondly, we must affirm it. We must assent to it, to use older language. We must acknowledge that what God says to be true is in fact true. We must take this content of knowledge in our head and bring it down into our heart. And we must affirm it. But then, it's not enough for the knowledge and the affirmation of it, but then it must also make its way into our hands. We must act on this knowledge. We must put God to the test, so to speak, exactly like he says in Malachi 3.10. We must apply what we know and affirm and live and act as if it is true for me and you right now. True biblical faith, true biblical faith always involves putting yourself at risk. Why? Because you don't know the future. You don't know what God is going to do. All you know is that he's going to come through on his promises. What does that look like? I don't know. Man, you know, last week I was cleaning my crystal ball and it slipped and it broke on the concrete. Oh, just so frustrating. True biblical faith means that you're going to live in such a way that if God doesn't come through on his promises, you're going to look ridiculous. And you need to be okay with that. You and I need to trust the promises of God for me and you in Christ. So, to believe in Jesus, to use an old phrase, to believe in Jesus is to know head, affirm heart, and trust hands. 
that everything he did and everything he said worked. It's, it's true. He, he did it. And, and it works. It worked then and it works now. And guess what? It's going to work in the future as well. Praise Jesus. Amen. amen. Well, you guys are... Yeah, give me some praise Jesus's and amens here. I need that. When we believe in Jesus, when we trust him, we can know him. You'll never find the perfect proof for your faith. What you will instead find is the perfect person. And then you'll preach the good news. Preach the good news. The good news is, in part, that all your sins can be forgiven. Are you interested? All your sins can be forgiven simply by trusting God's promises for you in Christ. So when you're going throughout your day, think about a promise. There's dozens of them. Go to God's word in the morning and find some. And as you're going through your day, remind yourself that this promise is true and it applies to you. And then take that promise and begin to live like it is true for you right now. Right where you are. For example, 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us all our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 Are you struggling with the fact that you just sinned a few minutes ago? We confess our sins. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 Praise you, Jesus. Thank you that this is true for me right now. Amen. Know this promise. Affirm this promise is for you. And then remember it when Satan or his minions remind you of your sins. And then pick up and keep moving forward. Because, Paul continues, verse 24. All who trust in Jesus are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. Oh, I see, I stopped it. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So, of course, now we got two more questions. The questions just keep coming, but we, we, we know that, and this is why it takes all of Scripture to unpack this one little paragraph. So what does justify mean? What, what is Paul getting at there? Well, fortunately, in just a few verses later, Paul answers the question. In verse 5, he says, To the one who does not work but believes in him or trusts God's promises, believes in him who justifies the ungodly, here is the definition of justification, his faith is counted as righteousness. The one who trusts the Lord that person is the one that the Lord counts as righteous. 
That is the person, and we will get into this more as we get into Romans 4, not made righteous. I'll explain later why that's not true. But we are counted as righteous. The Lord says, ah, yep, there's one for you. And you are now righteous. Everyone who is in fact justified, who is acquitted of our sins, who is declared not guilty by the heavenly tribunal, everyone everywhere who has begun an eternal friendship with the King of heaven and earth is justified as a free gift who is declared to have a right relationship with God because of the redemption in Jesus, Paul says. Now we have to ask the question, what on earth is this redemption all about? What are you saying about that, Paul? Well, praise Jesus. Fortunately for us, Paul defines redemption. And we find that in Ephesians 1.7 and now in Colossians 1.13 and 14. Paul says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What is redemption? The forgiveness of sins. Right? Now allow me to give you an image that will help these two things click in your mind. If you had a coin, you could call this coin atonement. Being made at one with God. And On that coin, you have one side is justification. You need to have righteousness counted to your credit, to your account. That's the positive side. But then the flip side of the coin is you need to have redemption. You need to have your debits wiped out. You need to have your sins forgiven. And when God counts you as righteous and he forgives you your sins, you are made at one with God. Now, obviously, these two concepts are very closely related to each other. They're, in fact, two sides of one coin. It's the same coin, just two ways of looking at it. But I imagine there's at least one person in this room who's thinking as I did, wait a minute, there's there's a hang-up here. And, and I'm not sure that I'm going with you on this, Pastor Greg, because I see a big problem. And that big problem is God is being unfair. God told Adam and Eve, on the day you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Is God a liar? Is he? Did they die? But not that day. They didn't die that day. Is God a liar? I've got an an illustration for you. You may remember this. You may remember... um, (laughs) I lost my place. Um, You may remember a young man named Brock Turner. January 18th, 2015, Brock Turner raped an unconscious woman on the university campus in Stanford. Got arrested, tried, and he served three months of a six-month 
prison sentence. He served it in the county jail under protective custody. Now he is back at home in Ohio and he is serving three years of probation and he will be registered sex offender for the rest of his life. Now, if you remember this incident at all, you remember it because it was an unjust sentence. Oh my goodness. How does someone who is now a triple felon serve only three months of, pri- of jail? That's not fair. And it's not. I don't care how you cut it. Now, this June, we'll find out if that judge who made this sentence gets recalled or not. Be paying attention. But you can't kick God, the judge of the universe, off of his bench. Is God guilty of negligence as far as his law is concerned? Is God too lax on crime? Can God be just and the justifier of those who put their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Are some of you thinking, Greg, you're a heretic. I better run. Of course God can. But we have to ask the question, how? How can God be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus? The answer to this question will change your life and your eternity. And the answer is propitiation. Now, doesn't that make your day? You woke up this morning thinking, man, I wish I could have somebody explain propitiation to me. Well, here you are, and you are in luck. Praise Jesus. God is just to forgive you of your sin. God is just in the fact that he did not condemn and kill Adam and Eve that day that he, they sinned because of propitiation. God in his time, poured out his wrath against your sin and against Adam and Eve's sin on Jesus on the cross. Now remember, a month ago, we gave a definition of wrath. The wrath of God is his settled and perfectly righteous antagonism to evil. God cannot allow evil into heaven. He is diametrically opposed to all evil. And so, one of two things is going to happen. When a person dies who has their evils still accounted to their account, still attributed to their account, still reckoned or counted, whatever verb you want to put there, they're all biblical verbs, they will spend eternity apart from God in hell. Fortunately, there's another option. And that option is when Jesus was on the cross, God poured out his wrath against every sin of every man, woman, and child who would ever put their trust in Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one in all of history who can 
bear the wrath of God and live to tell the tale. And he did it. In approximately the three hours, he hung in darkness on the cross. Jesus understood this is what was going to happen. And in Luke twenty-two forty-two, he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Oh, Lord. He darn well knew what he was doing and he did it anyways. And what was it that held him to the cross? Not the Roman nails. But the hope that he was looking forward to to spending eternity with you and me. Propitiation is the idea that Jesus bore the wrath of God so you wouldn't have to bear it yourself. And because he did, you and I can preach the good news. I don't know if Brock Turner has repented of his sins since this incident. I I pray that he has. But no matter what any human judge decides, you can offer Brock forgiveness because God's wrath has been poured out on every sin committed by every person who trusts God to destroy those sins for him or her. You can preach the good news because Jesus died and he rose again and he lives to speak for everyone he has made his friend. You can not only offer Brock Turner forgiveness, you could preach the good news to yourself. You can preach the good news to your loved one that you would just as soon never see again. Boy, this gets personal, doesn't it? All your sins can be forgiven. Are you interested? Paul continues back in verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul was astounded. Paul was flabbergasted. Paul was just beside himself in this thought that people were saying God could be just and the justifier of sinful, evil, wicked, terrible people, namely those sinful dog Gentiles. And Paul spent a good amount of time killing people and imprisoning people who taught such blasphemy precisely because he believed those false teachers were consigning their sheep to hell. And if you look at the early career of Saul slash Paul, it begins to make a lot more sense what he thought he was doing. Now praise Jesus, he was wrong. And praise Jesus, the New Testament specifically forbids that we do anything like that ourselves. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. They are spiritual. They are powers. And by the way, you have my my permission. Kill all the demons you can with any means you think will work and that'll be great. 
personally, I hope when Jesus calls me up, he sends me back down with the sword in hand to do exactly that. Lord, come quickly. But we must understand another point. The cross is not legal fiction. Jesus fulfilled the law actively and passively. Jesus actively fulfilled the law in the fact that he obeyed every single aspect of the law without fail. And then he passively fulfilled the law in that he bore the penalty for our failure on the cross because we have failed to obey the law perfectly. This is found in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The wrath of God against every sin of every person everywhere who would ever trust his promises were poured out on Christ. Therefore, Jesus could say in John chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished all your sins can be forgiven are you interested now here Paul switches gears a little he wants to clarify the graciousness of the gift of propitiation he wants to make sure that you make no mistake that you might have earned this gift somehow Paul wants you to know that God saves by grace through faith and he does that in verses 27 to 31 then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No! But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes! Of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised, those who follow the law, by Faith, not by being circumcised or following the law. And he justifies the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now this paragraph will become much clearer as we tackle Romans chapter 4. What we have to understand, what is crystal clear right now, is that everyone, everywhere, every when who has been saved has been saved by grace through faith. And everyone, everywhere, every when who has been saved has been saved by trusting the promises of God for them in Christ. And you must beware of any theology or any person who tells you that Old Testament saints were saved any differently than New Testament saints. That's clearly wrong. They were, they were saved by grace through faith exactly as you are. Now that faith, of course, was expressed differently than ours is. John, Jesus took care of that in John, John chapter 6. Their faith was expressed differently than ours is. We don't offer lambs on an altar. Instead, we are commanded to lay down our lives. So preach the good news. Know and speak to those around you the promises of God for you in Christ. Affirm them in your heart repeatedly over and over. The Bible calls this meditating 
on the words, on the promises of God, so that you and those who are near you will bleed gospel truth when you are pricked by the world. And then go forth in your day-to-day acting as if those promises were true for you right now, right where you are. And live so that you will look ridiculous if God doesn't come through for you. Because he will. Of course he will. Let's pray. Oh Lord, so many things in this dense paragraph. But we come humbly before you and we rejoice in you and we ask that you would work in us to draw us close to you so that we might rejoice because you rejoice in us. (laughs) That's amazing. But you do. You told us you do. And for that, we put our hope in you. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.